Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I am here with my co-host, Joe Hagan, and a very special guest, a friend of the Hive, friend of Vanity Fair's, James Pogue. Welcome to both of you guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's exciting to have you here because uh, you have a story in the Hive this week entitled Inside the New Right, where Peter Thiel is placing his biggest bets. James, this story is incredibly exciting. As I mentioned to you earlier today, I read it. I got up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, 3.30 in the morning, couldn't sleep, got up. Our colleague Gabe Sherman had texted me, said, oh, you should read this. So I read it. Yeah, great, amazing story. Super in-depth look at this pretty exotic world, but it's a world of consequence, and it's one we need to be talking about, I think. You wrote a book called Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West, in which you kind of like got in deep with the sort of the militia movement out West. That probably wasn't too many ticks away from some of the world that you're involved in now with this, which is the world of kind of a disparate world of intellectuals and thinkers on the right who are in shadowing the Trump movement in some way. It's interesting, actually. I almost feel like I was able to do this story, which is about, you know, sort of people within the political and media elite of the right in America. I was almost able to do this story because I've been really disconnected from those worlds for the last few years. Like I spent, you know, a large portion of my time in the rural West. I'm in the rural West now where I live in a town of 240 people. And so some of the shifts that were happening on the American right I was able to see as a totally new identifiable phenomenon in a way that if you were just there seeing them incrementally, you might not have actually noticed. And so it was interesting because historically, as most people listening to this will probably know, the far right in America has been very libertarian, right? And it's all been sort of like geared around this kind of, you know, people call it anti-government, whatever name you want to put to it. This kind of militia thing was always a highly libertarian thing. Now, I've noticed here in the rural politics and also sort of surprisingly in the American elite, it's become much more this kind of split between globalist and nationalist, right? And that's sort of something that has come even to my town where you will have people in this town running for county supervisor describing themselves as anti-globalist. But of course, the center of that is in DC and New York, a fact that I saw with totally new eyes. So it was kind of a neat reporting experience that I wouldn't be able to have if I had still been living in Brooklyn. Well, because you're not living in Brooklyn anymore and because you are removed from it and the fact that you do have fresh eyes, how did you come back to it? So I am from Cincinnati, Ohio, as is J.D. Mm. Vance. I talk about this a little in the piece, um, but it's kind of an interesting backstory because uh, my parents are both longtime activists involved in what you might call the Appalachian communities of Cincinnati, where you have these migrant communities that came from the coal fields and farm towns and things like that and moved to the quote unquote big city. 
And that is the background that J.D. Vance comes from. And that was sort of the background that shaped his book, Hillbilly Elegy. And so we had this similar kind of, I grew up in a more middle-class household than him, but like we had a similar kind of cultural background. Like I went to Boy Scouts and my dad was, you know, went to AA in the same kind of communities with the camel cigarettes and the dingy bars. So I'd always wanted to meet him. And finally, one day I had a sick uncle, so I had to go back and I hadn't been back for a long time. And I basically just kind of had a, a mutual acquaintance cold call him and ask him if I could meet him at a diner and talk to him for a piece for a conservative magazine. And that began this kind of interesting dialogue between the two of us. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote a piece that was very critical of him, or at least was perceived as very critical. It went very viral and a lot of people thought it was a real condemnation. And he wrote to me and was kind of like, let's keep talking. And then when I got this assignment, it was sort of on the strength of that. It was just sort of like we were spitballing about how we might describe this world. People, We had discussed doing another J.D. Vance piece. I didn't want to do that. I said, let's broaden it. And J.D. was very, very willing to meet me at NatCon and talk more, as perhaps we can talk about. NatCon. Right. National Conservatives. This And this was like a conference that you went to, which the piece opens up. We're in that with you, and we're going to see some of the speakers and some of the fans and kind of enthusiasts class of, and there are a lot of young people who are kind of attaching themselves onto this. And behind it, as the title of the piece suggests, Peter Thiel, this Silicon Valley billionaire, uh, recently of the Facebook slash Meta board, and a funder of J.D. Vance's political aspirations presently. Yes. Yeah, speak to that a little bit, yeah. So NatCon is a, an often, I think, misunderstood event, if you want to call it an event, you could almost call it a movement. There have been two NatCons in the United States. The first one was in 2019. The second one was canceled because of COVID. But then there's also been ones in Europe. There's one in Rome. I think there's one in Brussels. And what these are are gathering spaces that might be most easily understood as an attempt to create a conservatism that looks sort of like the conservatism of uh, Marine Le Pen in France. It's something mm-hmm. that sort of combines left-wing, traditionally left-wing economic policies with a kind of what they would often describe as using the word localist, um, but a sort of localist or nationalist set of cultural values. That is a very tricky project to pull off in the United States because we don't have the kind of ethnic, traditionally ethnic worldview that the French might have, right? And so it's a very it's a very strange project, and it's a project that people like J.D. Vance have put a lot of effort into. Um, and J.D. is very much involved in the National Conservatism Project and considers it a movement. Other people there are sort of along for the ride or are sort of like come to the conference to meet like-minded people but are not necessarily what you would call national conservatives. And this sort of lends a hint at this larger ecosystem of which national conservatism is only a part, which in the piece we describe as the new right. There's a lot of debate about what that name really should be. Well, and that's, you write about this. You say it's sort of a tangled set of frameworks for critiquing the systems of power and propaganda that most people reading this probably think of the way the world is, you say. And one point shapes all of it. It's a project to overthrow the thrust of progress, at least such as liberals understand the world, uh, the word. But a lot of people listening to this, and I remember when I was reading it, it was like, well, this is all interesting, and I'm glad they're having these in debates, and I'm glad you're engaging them. Uh, but at the end of the day, it kind of like is attached to 
you know, this kind of big, dumb hammer political movement that Trump himself is the representation of. There's a tension between wanting to talk about the intellectual underpinnings of it and the way it's delivered on a plate on Fox News, right? Yeah. So this, I mean, this really, should we just get into it? I mean, yeah, let's get into it. That's what this is about, man. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, so imagine, imagine we had a governing worldview and I'm not saying necessarily that everybody in this conversation agrees with that, but imagine that we had a governing worldview in this country that basically said, stuff is always getting better. Like we're always, and if you don't think that stuff is getting better, there's something like kind of wrong with you. So if you think that Facebook actually like like should never have happened, if you think that like our infrastructure was better in the seventies, then you're kind of a reactionary, a crank and that sort of thing. Right. And this may not be as much America's governing ideology as some people on the right tend to think it is, but there is some strand of that. And what has kind of happened in the last few years is that broadly, a lot of people who are disillusioned with what America looks like today for various reasons, and we can go into those too, some of them are darker than others, they started to feel like you could not in public life express discontent with the direction America was going in without being canceled, called reactionary, called an idiot. And then one day Trump came along. And basically all of these people who didn't necessarily have a coalition or a view or of governance that they would necessarily all share, could use Trump as a guy who just stood there with a hammer and bashed the course of history in half and said, okay, we're doing something new. And so all of the assumptions of American politics that were once casually kind of embodied by like the Clintons, we're going to have globalization, America's going to be the leader in the world, all this stuff. Trump was like, maybe not. Maybe all this was a bad idea. And That was a very, very important historical moment for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that it actually shattered a kind of American governing consensus. And it is starting to really reshape how the right sees itself and sees its project. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. It's so funny because uh, I was saying this to Joe before we started recording that your piece was so fascinating to me, but it made me feel dumb because I feel like there's like a whole world that I don't quite understand. And I think Joe and I are two pretty informed people who generally understand the ways of the world and, and certainly the ways of, of political worlds. But it's really hard for me to like, for my neurons to put themselves together and understand what is happening here. And I think maybe that's the point. And I, I think that the way you just synthesize it actually makes it, makes it, sensical to me that, and you tell me if I'm right here, that these people wanted to shatter a norm and Donald Trump's shattering of so many norms gave them a path. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one way, one way of looking at it, and I forget, I think this is a Lenin quote, but it's something that people on the new right say a lot, uh, is that you can't describe water to a fish, right? The ideology, so ideology is classically it's water around us that we're all swimming in 
And what the project of any overthrow of a government or a governing system has to start out as is to explain the water to the fish. And so what was very difficult about writing this piece to some degree is I'm writing for a liberal magazine about people who are trying to describe the water to people who are still in the water. And so you're like, wait, what is going on? And the synapses start to fry, right? And that is something that just to go to just to go to this a little further, the smart thing, I was shocked reporting this at how deeply well read a lot of these people mm. are. Um, and you get into this kind of thing like maybe jumping ahead and anticipating a question, but one of the characters in the piece, this guy Curtis Yarvin, I'm like sort of for very weird reasons, I'm sort of an expert in the history of the Jacobite kings of England. Um, who were, you know, deposed by the Puritans. And then but for some reason, that's a thing I know a lot about, right? And that's something that like for years I've been interested in. And Yarvin knows way more than I do about mm. it. And it's just one small subset of his interests. And so you're just like, and like with J.D. Vance, he'll like quote Arthur Schlesinger on Roosevelt from this thing in the 40s. And you're like, wait, why do you know that? Like, what is going on? Right. Um, and so it's an intensely theoretical world, and it's a world where people, to get back to the original question, it's a world where people study ideology really deeply. They study ideology and propaganda in a way that I personally never had. I like novels and history books and stuff. And so a lot of the stuff that forms their worldview, which I couldn't really get into because, I, you know, it, I was trying to focus on the social phenomenon of this world more so than the intellectual one. But the stuff they're reading is like, histories of how management worked in the 18th century like it's it, some of it is very very weird but it's how yeah yeah but they're looking to understand the modes of power and propaganda and how those work to govern a society well let's talk about that because this connects directly with what emily was saying first of all just an aside curtis yarvin who you mentioned earlier kind of a thinker and a, a blogger and so forth and, and part of peter Thiel's circle Right. Mm -hmm. he, he's sort of a, the house intellectual for Peter Thiel in some ways. One of the views of a lot of the people you talk to really across the spectrum, but he expresses this, is this idea of the water that we're all in. They call they have all these different words for it, like the matrix or the, the, the cathedral. Right. We, we are all like they say that you and myself are these culturally educated liberals who have benefited from globalization and a financialization of the economy. And so we are all just, without even knowing it, advocating for it, destroying its enemies, propagandizing for it. And we all just are trying to advance, without even maybe thinking that's what we're doing, advance some giant Uber narrative that's just helping like the Clintons or whatever, right? So, <laughs> or, or, or name your favorite globalist that Alex Jones wants to pierce with his Don Quixote uh, right. spear. I right? mean, Bill Gates, Bill Gates would be the, the prime, I think, Soros. these days. Uh, right. even, the, maybe, maybe even more than Soros, but, but right. yeah, close, close tie. But yeah. this is what Alex Jones was always talking about with the globalists, right? I remember I wrote about Alex Jones like a decade ago. And he was uh, just like a performance artist to me. I mean, just, but he was definitely on to something because he had this huge following. And as soon as you write anything about him, he sends all of his like minions from the radio to attack you and send you emails with all caps and everybody would freak uh, out, right? This is a different era, but it's a similar yeah. idea. But, but so how did you feel as somebody who is ostensibly 
didn't understand that he was swimming in the water and they're telling you you're part of like in this sort of semi-paranoid conspiratorial way that you don't realize that you're just uh, being, you know, lamb led to slaughter. <laughs> well, yeah. So this goes back to actually your first question. And it's something that I personally have wrestled with my entire career, to be entirely honest. I didn't have a name for it until I met Curtis Yarvin. But I think anybody who covers the right, as I have for essentially my entire adult life, comes, you you do notice, you notice, and this is the thing that that I described Curtis describing in the in the piece, you do notice an incentive to heighten your reporting, to make things, to make what you might call the the other side seem as, as evil as possible, right? And this is probably more I don't I didn't say this in the piece, but uh Walter Kern, who's sort of in this ecosystem and the novelist, most famously, I think, for having written that book Up in the Air. Walter Kern described Curtis Yarvin to me as, above all, a historian and analyst of the American left. And I think that that was actually like a very key and interesting point, because Yarvin has done a lot to describe the critiques of this world. He's done a lot to promote ideas of how a society should be governed. He's done a lot of writing that is pretty crazy. But his probably most lasting thing is this concept of the cathedral, which is just a fancy name for the process that you're describing, by which a journalist gets incentivized to take somebody who, say, doesn't want large-scale immigration and to call them a nationalist and a racist and things like that. The problem is that often those people are nationalists well, or racists. I was, and I, like, I was going to say, like, there's a tendency, I think, to label people whose views are different than yours as as other or bad or evil or crazy, right? And then there's just calling it as it is. And I think that he has had many years of documented proof of him having deeply problematic, racist, white nationalist views. Is that not accurate? Just as a as a fact, right? I mean, so this is this is something that you can talk about with Curtis Yarvin forever. If the definition of being a racist is that you promote the idea that there's intelligence differences between races, then he's definitely a racist. To him, he's an analyst who just uses his intellect to define terms as the science says. I don't personally know anything about the science. I have talked to him at, about this at great length. It is my understanding that everybody is pretty much as smart as everybody else. And so this would be a thing that I would tend to point out, as I did in the piece, as a pretty problematic yeah. view. The thing that I, you'll notice that I'm not doing, and I, I just sort of made a deal with myself not to do in this piece, is like, I did want to not fall into the trap of their own critique of the media, right? So I did want to not editorialize and apply labels to them in the way that they suggest the media always does. Because if you do that, then suddenly it sort of, it starts to make the point for them, right? Okay. And I, so I set out very originally and discussed this with the editors to not do that. And it was a very tricky line, one that seems to have paid off. I mean, it, we've been getting a lot of accolades both from left and right. Some criticism that I wasn't hard enough on them. But again, that criticism was generally asking for the kind of editorializing that they suggest the media always does. And so it was like, I just didn't want to do that. It's fascinating. And I think it's something that that we all, particularly in this era, grapple with of, of not wanting to fall into a trap of 
of one side saying like, I told you so, or this is just this, all of this reporting is worth nothing because they did exactly what they said they were going to do. If you said something that was critical of them. And then at the same time, when very egregious things are happening or being said, being able to call them out as a reporter as factually wrong, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a really tough needle to thread. And I think you explain it really well. The thing I kept coming back to as I read this piece, and it's really a phenomenal piece is why are they talking to you? If you are part of this cathedral, right? You are there reporting for a magazine that I think that they probably would use as like kindling for a fire, if not an intellectual argument. What are they doing spending all this time with you? That's a great question. So I'm, and I, you know, that's something I've wrestled with a lot. Like I don't, I don't want to, one hates to praise one's own piece, but there is something weird going on here that I've puzzled about. Like there are no other new right pieces that have had this much access. And the short answer is that I think it, it, it flows in large part from the fact that J.D. Vance trusted me mm-hmm. and that we had this kind of exchange. And he, you know, I mean, like we had a, we have a similar background. We can talk about things. We've talked about things in ways that he felt fairly treated by the piece that I wrote about him even though it was critical. And I think that a lot of people in this world, and this is kind of why I am hesitating to do the editorializing, is a lot of people in this world are just so used to not being treated fairly at all, that if you do it to a bare minimum, like all of a sudden new vistas of reporting open up, right? And that was true with Blake Masters. Um, With Curtis, he had read my piece about J.D. Vance, like kind of on the plane, I think, to NatCon, he read it. And, you know, he came up to me and he said, this seems like somebody uh, who I'm willing to talk to. Uh, but it was touch and go. I, you know, I went to NatCon not knowing if anyone would talk to me and kind of had to work my way in. Uh, obviously, alcohol has had something to do with that. Uh, yeah. And that helps. to. And you mentioned the drinking, which I appreciated. And, <laughs> and I just want to say that the success of the piece, why I found it really appealing, was exactly for the reason that you just laid it out what they were saying. And it lets you judge for yourself. Yeah. And here's what I will say is like, first of all, I recognized and I and Greg Sargent at the Washington Post pointed this out, that there are overlaps between the economic left and the economic right. You know, and there's the Bernie bro overlap and you can feel it within some of the intellectual conversation they're having here. But you're also able to see the way, ways in which there's a bit of like um, narcissism to their intellectual conceits in that they don't see that how reactionary they are in some ways and that they're falling prey to some of the same kind of puritanism that the left falls prey to. Um, But I did relate to some of it in that, like, yes, there are excesses to the woke movement. Yes, the tech thing is toxic to our lives and that we're living in a hellscape of some kind. You know, we're all trying to figure out our way forward in that, right? It also showed me that some of their um, intellectual ideas about what the solutions are were just fancy ways of saying exactly what Trump is including the coup, which you point out, right? There's this whole idea of we need a Caesar-like figure to come and destroy the whole thing, right? And even J.D. Vance echoes some of that thought, you know, and they have this, this uh, you know, uh, rage, retire all government employees and, and, and their call for a kind of dictator, right? Mm-hmm. And I know he tries to walk that back a little bit, but basically they're, they're looking at Trump and they don't want to mention his name because it'll immediately cause a, a reaction. But they're basically arguing intellectually for a Trump. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
if if not something more. I think it makes sense, you know, probably for us here to be talking about Trump as an example of this kind of person. But I actually think that what they want is not kind of Bolsonaro, Trump, Duterte kind of chaos figure who comes in and sh- I think they want something that is sort of like more like a cross between Ooh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Do certainly it. Roosevelt, certainly Roosevelt and you know, like the Prussian military, like, I mean, to, to be safe, I, I, a lot of them admire the Prussian military quite a lot. Right. And I, I'll take those two things separately. Cause they kind of, they kind of seem separate. They kind of seem insane to put together, but Roosevelt, they admire as someone who came in in 1932 and Curtis Yarvin will do this. I didn't talk about this in the piece. Curtis Yarvin has a party trick where he will play for interviewers. He will read for interviewers Roosevelt's inaugural from his first presidential inaugural. And everybody pretty much who hears it thinks it's Hitler because Roosevelt is demanding power and he's demanding administrative power in a way that the executive branch wasn't able to exercise at the time. And Roosevelt came in and put in a lot of agencies and stuff. We can go into all of that. But according to Yarvin and J.D. Vance and stuff like, and, and people like this, Roosevelt accomplished a revolution in American governance that kind of we don't acknowledge as a revolution, but he was essentially in their minds, something like a dictator. But also, and this is where things start to get tricky, is like America has a tradition of liberalism, you know, like removing it from the context of the Democratic Party and what liberal means today. Liberalism in the sense of individual values, individual pursuits are the governing are the governing thing, the governing like goal yeah. that we use to, to identify what a good life is and things like that. A lot of the people in this sphere, and certainly Yarvin is one of these people. I don't know necessarily if it's fair to say this is true of Vance, but a lot of the people in this sphere are not liberals in a deep sense. They believe that people should live for the nation values, church, mm-hmm. community, family, not for their individual pursuits. Right. And that was a big part of your story that uh, uh, that struck me, actually, is that, you know, there have radical means to reach a extremely non-radical thing, in the, you know, which is just a normal life. Right. Well, right. In their so, minds. Yeah. And I don't know if this life would look normal to any Americans, even to Americans in the 1840s. Like you will often hear people critique things in this in this world, and I, I I think we pulled this out from Blake Masters. But you know, Blake Masters will will critique, and I think it's an interesting critique. He will critique the fact that it's normal in the United States for kids to move, you know, hundreds of miles away for work from their families. Like that's a thing that maybe didn't have to happen in our society. It, it could be it could be like an absolute taboo for a kid to live more than a day's car drive from his parents or her parents. That's a thing that somehow like we decided, no, the individual pursuit is worth more. A lot of people in this world would disagree with that. And they would disagree with things like the sexual revolution. They would disagree with whether feminism has actually helped women. Stuff that like really starts to get to push people's buttons, to get people worried. And the more you explore this stuff, um, the more you're finding that you have both these political questions, but also this kind of longing when we talk about you know, a dictator or a monarchy or authority, someone who could come in and instill a sort of like top-down set of values that binds the nation together, things like that. That's what a lot of these people are talking about. But that, and the line between that and like fascism is, 
a very thin one. Yeah. And I, I get what they're coming from and I get where, what you're saying. And it's sort of like, in a way, it's a new package for an old thing, which is like the traditional values, right? I mean, right. And I'm, I mean, again, I'm, I'm sort of avoiding, I'm sort of avoiding the F word, but like, let's put it this way. According to the definition broadly shared on the American left. Yeah. I, th- I think you basically, the colloquial definition of fascism. Yeah. It sounds a lot like that. Right. And I think that that is something that they have to really wrestle with. And it's something that frankly, I wish, and I mentioned this in the piece it's something that you're able to have really nuanced and interesting conversations with some of these people about the accusation of fascism and why they think what they're doing is different than fascism and things like that. Uh, you will not have those conversations on the record because they know the salience of the quote. They know the salience right. of that word. And something I can say that isn't going to violate off the record stuff is I use that word in the context of J.D. Vance uh, when I wrote my first piece about him. And the magazine actually kind of fought me on it, not because they thought I was using it unfairly, but because they thought it would overshadow the whole thing. It would just be the whole Twitter conversation would become about the fact that I used that word around him. So long story short, I wasn't allowed to use fascism per se to to describe like what my gut reaction to this was. And frankly, in the long run, I think that was good because it actually meant that people read the piece and engaged with it. And the people who decided that what they were looking at was fascism still could do that. Right. So it's a very complicated thing. What I do want to say on the on the fascism thing, though, is that, okay, sure, there are some people who would push back very, very strongly against that word and say, no, no, we are not that. There are people on the fringes of this thing, on every one of these podcasts, every one of these substacks, every one of these kind of big thinkers has listeners and fans and people on the periphery who are openly, proudly fascist, like every single one of them does. And you will hear them, you will hear them allude to that and things like that. And so there is sort of a line, interestingly, like in the sense that there are people who will fight very hard not to be called that. But they will also know that some of their listeners don't care and are, in, in fact, embracing Well, do they fight really hard not to be labeled that because they think it will then become either their ideas will not be heard by people uh, or it's too inflammatory for people to actually listen to them or because they actually think that they're not fascists? I think, I think it depends on the person. I mean... <sighs> Again, like I'm not trying to I'm not trying to sympathize necessarily or like put words in anybody's mouth. That said, like I grew up on the far left. Um, You know, my parents, my parents were Leninists. But like the point being that like my parents would then in their older era sort of do democratic politics and kind of abandoned revolutionary politics and did the electoral system and the Bernie thing and all that. If you called them Leninists just because they knew communists or like had communist books, I think they would fairly dispute mm. that, right? And so there is some nuance to this. That said, the stuff that really kind of gets my go is that you will frequently see somebody posting online and stuff, and they'll have these like kind of trollish followers who are doing really anti-Semitic stuff, really, really misogynist stuff. And they will pop up. They're always in the hidden replies, but they are always there. Or not, maybe not always, but they're often there. Um, and that's something that I, I do think has to be known about this world. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. 
She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I think that that's a really important point. And and one thing I noted in your story is you talking about with many very influential people, whether it's tech CEOs or politicians or thought leaders, these are people who they're all talking to and listening to and following. I personally was at a dinner with with thought leaders and CEO and this very conversation came up and these were people whose ideas they're paying close attention to in a way that truly wow. shook me and shocked me to my core. Like I wow. I was really rocked by it. And the fact that these very influential people are being heavily influenced or at least informed by these views and these views really are so closely drawn to fascism, to the idea that perhaps feminism wasn't a step forward in history in their view. Are people right to be scared by that? I'm scared by that. So, I mean, short answer, yes. I mean, I think I'm on the fence about the alarmism thing, in part because I just like as a writer, I've learned that I just don't, I'm not a political actor. I'm much better at describing things. And there's something I think that's really, really disturbing about the kind of political chaos that this is going to engender. And when I say going to, I mean, I think it is coming. I don't think, I don't think that like democracy as we know it in the United States is going to continue in its present form. I think that there's too many people who have checked out of that process. And most of that is on the right. Um, I think that to some degree, like the, the politics of this stuff are becoming fait accompli. And, you know, I quoted Walter Kern, who is, you know, very much immersed in, in some of this ecosystem. And, and he, he called this chilling, you know, and that I thought that was notable coming from somebody who was actually often considered to be a part of this world, right? As far as the, yeah, I mean, certainly as far as some of the ideas, those are both also very alarming. There is another version of this, though, that I think may be worth considering as a kind of re-examination of some of the the basic dead ends that we as a society have run into. And I think that like a society organized around consumerism and around purely individual choice is probably not a great society. And I, I, I certainly don't think that that's necessarily a right-wing critique, right? That's a critique that is often advanced by the left. It's mm-hmm. often advanced by It's a Marxist people. critique. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, or indeed a Catholic critique. It could be any kind of, you know, lots of different people have that critique. And for whatever reason, our society has not been able to process that in. And I think a lot of people are really unhappy with their lives these days. And it's really, really difficult for them to figure out why. Not everybody. Some people are... Um, 
But I think a lot of us have a kind of like empty feeling in our gut. And a lot of us feel like the technology that has sort of taken over our lives, taken over our brains. Um, and I guess the reason I'm not totally, totally, totally terrified by stuff like this is that I have a kind of hope that it will provoke the left into answering some of the questions that they're raising. And that to me, to me, if you want to fight this stuff, the answer is for people of other political stripes to come up with their answers, right? Um, I, I totally people, agree with you. I just want to chime in is because I I was just interviewing Charlie Crist recently. He's running against DeSantis in Florida. Yeah. And I said, well, they're coming at you with this culture war stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and they're going directly into the schools and they're saying, why is my kid coming home and saying they're not a boy when they're a girl or vice versa? And, you know, you're leaving this low hanging fruit there for them to exploit in the dumbest way possible, basically fear mongering. Right. Right. But what's your answer? What's how do you talk back to them? How do you assuage them? How do you tell them, oh, well, this is how we're going to get through this. This is what this means, you know? And there's not much of an answer there. There's not a message on the left that's clear that, you know, it's just like, no, the gates must just stay open and we must keep going forward in, in our diversity. And that's great. But you have to deal with the anxiety of the people that you have to bring people with you. Right. And the left hasn't done that yet. And they need to be have their hand forced. And unfortunately, that we're in this crunch where there's a midterm coming up and they may never get back into office to even have an answer. Right. That's the issue right. that that's the fear. That's the horror here. Let me just talk about J.D. Vance. He just got Trump is backing him. Right. Mm -hmm. And just to go back to the cathedral, the Washington Post magazine pr profiled him. And the whole opening of it is that he grew a beard. Right. I, and, it, you know, it's like a signifier of masculinity. And some people ask whether it's a put on. Right. Yeah. Well, you met the guy, you know, mm. is he is he phony? Oh, wow. That's not what I thought you were going to ask. No. But yes, um, <laughs> he's a politician. So, he's, yeah, a politician. he's a politician. I no. OK, so so what's interesting about J.D. Vance? And I say this and I get in trouble for it. And I'll keep saying it, though, is that if you sit down and talk to him, he's in a, he's a, actually like a shockingly genuine, well-read, very interesting, compelling person. And I don't mean that as an endorsement of his politics, but he's also he's also notably, notably, notably sensitive. And I think that that if you want to understand the J.D. Vance phenomenon, uh, one of the things to understand is that he's very perceptive of people's impressions of him. And he's very solicitous. He's very polite. He's very concerned with how people think of him and which not incidentally, I am too. It may have, there may be some conjunction there with our backgrounds. The character he's playing on TV, I do not think is genuine. And the character he's playing on TV, you know, it's kind of this culture war thing. It's this Trumpy thing. You know, there's no way for me to prove this because of course his public statements are his public statements. But, you know, J.D. Vance did not support Donald Trump in the first go round. And he almost got wiped out of the Ohio primary for the fact that he did not support Donald Trump. People were banging on that. It was key. If he is going to win, the number one thing that had to happen was Trump had to endorse him to wash away the fact that J.D. Vance didn't, didn't support Trump in 2016. Do I think that J.D. Vance, deep within his soul, really loves Donald Trump these days? No, I do not. Do I even think that he's in a, he thinks that JD, that, that Donald Trump is like an effective tool to overturn the system he's trying to overturn? No, I think he, Trump is just what's there. And I think that Trump is the path to power. And so there's a deep cynicism that is built into not 
the podcaster fringe, which is almost like this sort of wide-eyed, like like almost if you were going to give a very generous reading of the intellectual fringe that this new right represents. Part of it is that people are just wide-eyed, like, well, yeah, like, what if everybody just like had a family at, at 25 again? Wouldn't that be great? Like, like people sort of like are so they're coming to this with such fresh-faced. I don't know, naivete and like ideas of like what could be good because it once was the thing that we all did that they're often like sort of lose sight of like what the consequences are or what the costs of that were and what we gained through some of this quote unquote progress that they resist. Um, And so that's one critique that I offer a lot. Uh, As far as JD and maybe Blake Masters and things like this, it's hard not to read a certain amount of cynicism into what they're doing because I don't think either of them, like certainly neither of them like believes in the MAGA shibboleths that they're spouting. Um, certainly neither of them. And, you know, I can say this for sure because Blake Masters said it in the piece. He goes up there and he talks about Kyle Rittenhouse and he talks about how Kyle Rittenhouse was pilloried for being white. And that's hitting cultural touchstones that he thinks he needs to hit those buttons and raise those tensions, frankly, because he is participating in that and kind of get white people's goats going, he thinks that that's worth it so that he can get in there and do some of his other stuff. And beyond whether or not you think his political goals are good or not, the cynicism I don't like. It sort of seems like to me, you've got millions of dollars, you could run on what you actually want to do. You could actually tell people what you want to do. And I I don't watch a ton, I don't watch every media appearance that they're making. And But I don't think anyone's getting the impression deep down, like, Blake Masters is resisting a techno-consumerist dystopia. And is I, I don't think any of that stuff is coming across. I think a lot of people are seeing the kind of culture war stuff. The cartoon version. Well, I think, I think what yeah. you're describing is not unique to the right or this particular right. I think a lot of it is, is politics in general uh, sure. at this moment. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of posturing and a lot of things that I think most people perceive as, as icky and uh, a huge reason why so many people are turned off by the process because – you have people saying what you know that they don't believe in in order to win re-election with a group of people that they can't relate to. So I think what you're describing is is a particular moment uh, in history that is really unappealing to me and I think a lot of people. Uh, one thing I have to ask you about, and Joe and I were talking about this earlier, is so many, not all of the people, but so many of the people you talk to are men in your story. And there is a real toxic masculinity vibe here and like a return to men with a capital M maybe. I don't know how else you describe it. And uh, Joe sent me, Joe, I'll let you describe it. I'm a lady. I can't, I can't. (laughs) I'm actually happy to describe it because I've been laughing to myself about it all week, which is the Tucker Carlson produced End of Men trailer. Have you seen this? Uh, No, but I think I know where you're going with it. Does it involve sunning something? Yeah, tanning testicles. Yes. And I just want to quote from the Stephen Colbert send up of it. They did an ad for a toaster that you could actually put your testicles into. And they said, uh, from testicles to toasticles, which I thought was uh, very funny. And I've been laughing about it. But but this, you know, he's he's hitting a button. And, you know, by the way, J.D. Vance and Masters and running for office in Arizona are both candidates that Tucker Carlson is advocating on behalf of. And he brings them on the program and the common denominator are one of them is this idea of uh, reconstituting 
manliness and masculinity and uh, mm-hmm. testosterone levels, which is what the whole mm-hmm. toasting of the testicles is about. So what's your observation about that within this uh, new right you know, milieu? Yeah, it's a huge, huge thing. I'm going to wander a little bit of field here, if, you, if you'll let me. I, sure. I do jiu-jitsu. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and MMA and fight sports, and I've done them for a long time. And a lot of the stuff that is in, the, you know, sort of percolating up to the new right in terms of politics that people are covering was actually very present in MMA and sort of the fight world communities for a long time. And not, not least... Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, ball sunning, as they call it, uh, <laughs> that that's something that's something that arose from that's something that arose from this kind of new right adjacent thing that people call bro science, which has a lot of other tendencies. A lot of it is sun worship. Um, there's a big guy called Soul Bra in Australia uh, who has a podcast. He, he's big about the sun. He doesn't use sunscreen. They've got all kinds of stuff. But the idea there is that, of course, you're or the vitamin D is locally produced. So if you don't get the vitamin D to all your important parts, then mm-hmm. you're not, those parts aren't going to work well. That's the theory there. Which I say because when you talk about toxic masculinity, like in this culture, they're sort of, tra- they're sort of trying to reappropriate what now in liberal circles is considered toxic masculinity and saying, no, this is just good masculinity. Um, and so that's sort of where the conjunction of bro science and some people listening to this probably have heard of this figure, Bronze Age Pervert, who's a big kind of figure in this world, a writer and like often viewed as like a true intellectual, like elite thinker. And I won't, I won't lie, I actually haven't really engaged too much with, with BAP, so I can't speak too much to that phenomenon. But it is a phenomenon of sort of like proud masculinity and really intense right wing, like really, really intense reactionary politics. And that is very much at this sort of periphery of all of this. And there's a quote that didn't make it into the piece that I thought about including, um, where one of the one of the characters who's named Amanda Milius, she was talking to me about just kind of the culture of dating in DC and Brooklyn and stuff. And she said, soon conservative guys are going to get all the girls because they're going to, they like lift weights and they like have these supposedly like values that liberal guys don't because liberal guys are all just like smoking weed and, you know, watching Netflix and wasting their lives and like, you know, sleeping around until they're 39. Whereas like, you know, according to this theory, what people want is a guy who's like takes care of his body, has a six pack, is taking care of his kids, you know, at 32, wants to have a family. Um, and so this is actually a big part of their critique. Uh, whether or not you like that critique, this is a big part of the selling point of the new right is to go back to the feminism question. You have a lot of people who are like, yes, yeah, sleeping around did not work out for specifically women. Like the sexual liberation did not work out for women because women, according to this theory, want to get married. And then they're sort of told to like hook up with these guys who are like benefiting from this whole thing and like getting to sleep around and like getting to do guy stuff. And then everybody ends up in their 40s. Nobody gets married. Nobody can have kids, this whole thing. So this is the kind of gender, traditional gender as a thing that actually works really well for organizing human life is a big part of the argument on this new right. And traditional marriage as a thing that actually like really works out for young people is a big part of the selling point. And again, not to make a value judgment about that, but a lot of young people are buying that. A lot of people really, really believe it. And it's a lot of why 
Um, sorry, I'm talking a lot, but this is this is kind of like the key cultural component that is playing out on Twitter a lot of the time. Is you have I don't know if I can use this word. Like, like you, women will sometimes like describe other women in this world as quote unquote trad whores, where they're like, they went around from like, they went from being like left wing and like dating and doing all this stuff. But all of a sudden, like now they're like going to be somebody's trad wife and they're going to like convert to Catholicism. And they're going to have 16 babies and like, they're going to live on a farm. And like, it, it's, it's a real kind of like fantasy attraction for a lot of people in this world. Like to get, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to turn right wing. I'm going to get my husband. I'm going to go to church. My life is going to work. It's so interesting because I think, I think this point synthesizes the ideology so perfectly because it's presented as we're here to help women, but it has nothing to do with giving women a, a better choice. It has to do with men maintaining their power over women and doing things that advance their own opinion. Let me, let me stop you right there. Because that actually is the real, real, sorry, now I'm like a man talking over you when we're talking about toxic masculinity. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) Like the, the, the key word there is choice. And what they would say, and again, not endorsing this, this is just how they would say it, is they would say, you are misperceiving the value of choice. So you're 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 taking choice as the ultimate good. Do I have the choice to do this? Did I choose this? Are my choices the things that are shaping my life? And what they're saying is true liberation is not having to choose. Like true liberation is not like you choose your gender, you choose your, you know, where you grew up. Choice is such a key thing in this world. You will hear people on Twitter be like there's a viral tweet a little bit ago that was like you, if you haven't been in the place, I don't know, in a city for 10 years, then you don't really live right. there. They're, they're saying like all this choice that we've been offered by liberal life has actually just been to our detriment. It's made our lives shallower and worse. Um, I, I need to push back on this because I need to understand yeah. it. And I'm not, I know, I know these are not yeah. your viewpoints, but I know that you are a messenger of these viewpoints because you have steeped yourself in this world. Right. And so now I'm going to make you answer for them. But yeah, yeah. Unless, <laughs> unless every choice is automated, which I don't think is what the argument is here. Someone is making these choices at some level, right? And it just so happens that the people peddling them are making decisions at the top, and they're probably people who are rich white men are making these decisions that then people can slot into these decisions that these rich white men have decided for society. Is that not right? Yeah. I mean, that's more or less correct. I mean, and their argument is actually that was better. I'm sure it is. I mean, I'm sure I, they're they arguing that, that, that their philosophy is better. Yes. Um, but like, and there is not a single thinker in this world who, who I know of who has specifically advanced this sure. argument, but just for the sake of argument, you'd almost say like the true fall of what they would regard as like a good system for organizing society was actually a founding of, ironically, the founding of the United States. Because the founding of the United States took liberalism and took individual choice and put it at the exact forefront of governing an entire society. And we had like all these cultural folkways and very oppressive systems that kind of kept people locked into like moral traditions and the church and things like that. Uh, Some of which were brutally evil, some of which were maybe good. We can all talk about these. But we had a network, a, a mesh of stuff that made you live a certain way that was sort of independent of our political process. And now most of those things for at least coastal liberals are gone. Like you don't, we don't go to church. Like you don't have to like hang around your family all the time if you don't want to. 
And so the only thing left is this kind of like choice stuff. And they would argue, I don't know, they would argue sort of that your choices are not really your choices anyway, right? Because you're, you're given a Samsung phone or an iPhone. You have to have one or the other. You don't have well, to. Well, they, this is sort of where Ross Duthat sort of like hints at some of this. It's like the decadence of the culture oh, has sure. basically um, obliterated the meaning of freedom. Right. And and I get all that, you know. And it, But, you know, it's – these thoughts are not new necessarily. I remember, you know, my favorite quote from George Burns. Anybody mm-hmm. remember George mm-hmm. Burns? Um Happiness is a close, tight-knit family in another town. <laughs> so, like, you know, uh, you know, not everybody wants to be with their family. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mobility is a part of, like, American life, and it has been since uh, that French guy came over in the 19th century and wrote it all mm-hmm. down. You, <laughs> everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, um, um, But I get it, and um, I have to say that, um, you know, there is a – uh, another strand of this that you describe in your story of some of these new right figures who are, you know, we talk about the red pill and did you take the red pill or the or the mm-hmm. blue pill or whatever. And then there's these black pill people who are like these version. They're sort of a strand of this that are almost like nihilists and they're in this for some other reason, you know, because they just like the sexiness of it. They like the kind of like contrarian, the Alex P. Keaton sort of aspect of it, right? And you could argue that they are a bunch of Alex P. Keatons, you know what I mean? Like just gone rogue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, so the black pill thing, I mean, you don't really necessarily have to be new, right? To be black pilled, I don't think. Like, uh, so Can you the black, black pill thing. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good point. We are, we are on a podcast. So I can't define black pill because it's like a worldview, but it's like, okay, the climate is collapsing. America is a decadent hellhole. Everything's falling apart. There's no reason to actually get out of bed in the morning because all you're going to do is work to make money to go pay for your Netflix mm-hmm. subscription and like buy a new stupid iPhone. Uh, and pretty soon, like the whole, um, I mean, that's that's one way of being black pilled. There's another. Um, there's another way that's like a, you could say more sophisticated, which is like this guy who uh, goes by the name Tinksorg online, who's a half black, half Swedish gamer basically but also like a kind of like weird roving very strange figure in all of this who you know he works for like european populist parties and he comes on like this redneck gamer podcast called good old boys and he proffers these like very doomsaying things that have often come out to be true like about supply chains breaking down, about the internal contradictions of our system and the real economy that sustains it actually not functioning as well as we would like. And like about how the media is like kind of like not really willing to talk about it and how all of this is like starting to really, really spin into chaos. And I say that because there's a strand in this world that overlaps with something that people call accelerationism, which is like just have everything get so overlayered with bureaucracy, with kind of breaking down, with kind of like the idea that like our society is becoming incredibly complex and the systems don't work as well as we think they should. Yeah. It's going too fast. It's going to spin out of control. Right. Uh, And a lot of people want to let that happen so that the liberal regime will just fall. Right. And so a lot of people into accelerationism. Uh, And so like part of the black pill thing this is why I'm saying all this, is actually built in. It has a hope 
that our civilization is going to sort of collapse. And then, you know, the Caesar comes in or like, then we all get to live on farms again and like have happy trad wives and stuff. And like, then it all, <laughs> um, like, so they're like the black pill thing is often like a sort of hopeful thing. Unlike yeah. on the left, when you're black pilled, you kind of think the climate's going to collapse and like, we're all going to die. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it's funny you're saying all this, and we have to wind down here because we're going to go over Joe our time Joe could slot. talk about um, this all day. I'm literally thinking, how can I unplug every wire in my house so that my daughter never has to hear about any of this? That's my thinking. Joe <laughs> could go on forever, and I'm like, just kill me now. I'm black. Well, no. you know what? I I, I will say this, and this we'll yeah. save this for another episode. But like, you know, I have kids in school, and I live in a semi-rural. I live in a rural area. And um, in fact, down the road for me, though, is a cosmopolitan stronghold of Bard College. And we oh, didn't yeah. mention this, but you described this podcast called Red Scare. And the co-hosts actually went there and they're kind of awful. But you can read about it in his story. Uh, <laughs> but when you're dealing with, uh, you know, I live in a county that's 50-50 politically. And this conversation that we're having is kind of a, a little bit of an elevated version of actual things that are going on in the world. Now, I don't know whether, how they'll apply, whether they apply, whether they'll have any political velocity. What's We don't know. I mean, maybe they'll, as you describe it, they're kind of a disaggregated group of people and whether they gel into a thing. Right now, it's just Trumpism, which is this kind of horrible, annoying, toxic meme culture that's just terrible and it's bumper stickers and hate. But, uh, you know, I, I'm sure at the core of it is they all, a lot of these people if they don't have the words <laughs> to say it, but if they could, they would be saying what you, these guys are saying, right? They would like, we want the guys to be a certain way, women to be a certain way. We don't want to hear about diversity. When I, you know, Obama annoyed them uh, for reasons they couldn't put their finger on, but it doesn't take a brain scientist to put it together. So, uh, you know, but I will just want to end by saying that I value the fact that they're having the conversations. And I think that engaging them is valuable uh, for all of us, even if we just violently disagree with it. Yeah. I mean, let me just say quickly that oddly in my rural area, a militia linked kind of right wing coalition uh, just got control of the county board. And oddly, I mean, and it's a real head fuck for me. They have started to do something that looks a lot like a Yarvanite kind of like reworking of the government and they they will say like we're the motherfuckers in charge like in public and mm. they will they purged like they're trying to purge the um county board of health person they're trying to purge the county ceo and they're trying to put in all of their people which is exactly what jd vance talks about doing on a national level and so there's an interesting kind of kind of coming together of how these organic views are coming together with kind of more the elite views on the right. And, but yeah, to your point, the thing that I always try to say, for example, to my mom, when she's like, why are you talking to them? And the thing I always try to say is like, if you're not willing to recognize that there are problems with globalization, if you're not willing to recognize that there are problems with, you know, how tech works in our society, if you're not willing to recognize that, you know, that a lot of people in this society do experience a kind of like moral and spiritual vacuum then you're not going to have an invigorated and powerful left. And so it seems to me like we need to be having these conversations and at least to be knowledgeable about the critiques, because up until now, a lot of people are not even necessarily 
aware that these critiques are happening, even as this movement is gaining people who are seeing it and being drawn to it. Right. Well, that's the scary part. And that's why your report is so valuable. And I hope that people read it, you know, to see what's going on here and then realize they need to engage it. I was just talking to Greg Sargent at the Post, who's an old friend of mine, and just saying to him, listen, you know, if the Democrats don't figure out how to speak English down the middle, you yeah. know what I mean? And talk like regular people and 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 have answers to some right. of this stuff, they're gonna get well, they're gonna get cried crushed anyway, but they need to not they need to get less crushed. <laughs> yeah. Because we're in danger of seeing what we love, this country, which I as as cacophonous mm-hmm. and diverse and upsetting as all of the noise that we experience on a daily basis is, we are responsible for directing it and stage directing yeah. it and, and engaging with it. And if we don't, these guys are going to. And I don't yeah. think it's great <laughs> if these guys are running the things, right? So I, I, I think we need more democracy, not less, personally. But I think we're going to lose that if we don't start figuring out some of what is making this country so crazy. And we really need to get this is my last thing. It's my little spiel. But like, if we don't get a handle on how social media has changed political discourse in this country and how it's kind of like inflamed people's brains and really, really damaged how journalists interact with their subjects and how journalists interact with each other and how politicians interact with the media. If we don't get a handle on that, I don't think the system is going to survive. And that's not a left-right thing. Um, And I think Democrats would do well to pay attention to it. I think you're totally right. And we are so eternally grateful for you helping explain that that brain inflammation to us. And and <laughs> we want, want you to come back here and help us understand this and, and make sense of this and talk to us about what you're hearing from all these people. So thank you for writing this and for taking the time to sit here and explain to us the very basic concepts that I, I know you understand so well. We really appreciate it. I didn't understand him well before, uh, so <laughs> it was fun to learn this stuff, um, and it was great talking to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you to our guest, James Pogue, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to great episodes of The Hive. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs, and of course, the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to our sponsors, Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. 
Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.